0: This is an Odyssey Original. This is X In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
1: The FDA makes it official. If you're over 50 and want a second COVID booster shot from Pfizer or Moderna, you can get it now. The CDC is also recommending it. But is that data really there? Will it be free for everyone? We'll go in-depth into the decision behind the approval. New reports reveal A big mystery from the White House on January 6th, 2021. That's the day of the Capitol Hill riot. They say there's a major gap in the phone logs from former President Trump. Was Mr. Trump really not using his phone that entire time? And Will Smith escapes legal punishment. But what about punishment from the Oscars? A big meeting tomorrow could make history or could be not much of
0: anything. Officials from Russia and Ukraine meeting for peace talks in Turkey. Some progress. Uh, Will it create enough momentum for actual peace? We'll look at that. We go back to Ukraine, talk to a journalist who is writing about culture and issues of the day, now focus on helping people struggling during the war. And the NFL tries to make it easier for women to coach in the league. We'll look into whether this is actually going to work. And if we could one day see a female head coach.
1: But let's start with that second COVID booster shot. Dr. Thomas Yadigar is Medical Director of the Intensive Care Unit at Providence Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Tarzana. Doctor, doctor, thanks for being with us. So, uh, first of all, I'm puzzled because I know a week or two ago, uh, Mike and I had some experts on the show, as we often do on COVID, who said that uh, before the FDA, before the CDC would weigh in on a second booster, it would all go through the review process of, of their expert committees That did not happen this time around. Do you have any idea why?
2: Well, I think what they looked at was the real-world data from Israel, and uh, there were studies on 700,000 individuals um, ages 18 and up who did receive a second booster at least four months after they had received their first, and that there was no safety concerns. And I think after uh, that, they also looked at the fact that When patients do have uh, their immune shots, their boosters, and as well as their second shot of their booster, it does significantly decrease their hospitalization and their development of severe COVID.
0: With the just three shots now, where are we with that at this point in hospitalizations? I mean, is the evidence there that people really do need to go and get their fourth now, or is this to, hey, get it if you want to get it?
2: Well, I think the most important thing is actually the timing, and that's what we've been discussing with our patients the past month uh, because this this has been a hot topic where our patients have been asking us, you know, is the fourth shot approved? When should we get it? And I think for the highest risk patients, that's the patients that are immunocompromised. Those are patients that have had uh, transplantation or have uh, cancer and are undergoing chemotherapy or on medications that suppress their immune system. For those patients, um, it's a no-brainer. They should have their fourth booster shot, um, their fourth shot, which is our booster, to give them the most amount of uh, protection against developing severe COVID and becoming hospitalized. For other other patients that are in high-risk categories, so anyone over the age of 50, especially people with underlying chronic medical conditions, what what I've been advising my patients is to try to uh, time it to when the next surge or spike may happen, We know from the vaccine data that um, the vaccine, just like every other vaccine, does lose some of its effectiveness with time. So you would optimally want to have the vaccine two weeks before you're exposed to this virus again. That would give your immune system the most amount of uh, impact in fighting it.
1: Okay, so so now, though, it gets confusing. (laughs) because <laughs> Mike and I are now looking at each other
0: here. Mark uh, on the calendar when the next surge uh, is going to be. Right. <laughs> I,
1: I mean, I mean, how do you really know with any degree of, of uh, certainty is probably a bad word. But but how do you know when the next surge is about to come so you can get the vaccine and give it the two weeks for your antibodies to reach peak level?
2: Well, I think, you know, you hit it on the, you hit the, on a the nail. Uh, with uh, It is complicated and it is confusing, but if you look at our past uh, two years, at least here in L.A. County, you know, we've had a smaller spike slash surge in July, August, and then obviously a much larger one in the winter months. Um, and if you look at the data in our community, you will see an uptick in the number of positivity rates. So you can actually, if you're paying attention and if you're looking at the data, you can actually... Um, figure out when the next spike or surge is going to happen and get it in time before um, it really, you know, takes hold in our community. The other patient population is uh, patients that are traveling. So um, one of the last patients I just spoke with in my office, uh, she was traveling and and, and at that point, you know, it had been six months since her last booster and, uh, you know, she felt uh, that it would give her better protection and uh, she was also going to visit her 90 year old uh, mother, so she wanted to make sure that not only was she protecting herself, but also protecting her 90 year old mother, and that uh, decreasing the chances she may get infected and pass it on to her.
0: Doctor Thomas Yadigar, Medical Director, Intensive Care Units, Providence Cedar Sinai in Tarzana, anticipated my next question, which was going to be, "Hey, real world talk. You think people are going to get this before big uh, European vacations and uh, family reunions?" And uh, yeah, probably.
1: Yeah, and, and and by the way, we, we haven't heard from the government, we mentioned it at the very top, about whether the vaccines are going to be free. Presumably, they will still be free, but the government, of Everyone's course, going
0: to expect them to be free. <laughs> well,
1: but, and the government is running out of money because Congress didn't pass that extra, you know, few billions of dollars to pay for things like, I don't know, vaccines. vaccines. Yeah. Right now, lots of questions being raised of what President Trump was doing during the Capitol Hill riot on the 6th of January of last year. The Washington Post and CBS News saying internal White House records from that day turned over to the January 6th House Committee show a gap in the former president's phone logs of more than seven and a half hours. Renato Mariotti is an attorney, former federal prosecutor, host of the On Topic podcast. Uh, Thanks for being back with us. I mean, uh, shades of uh, Richard Nixon and the, uh, what was it, seven and a half? Wasn't it seven and a half minutes of tape that was missing from, from his thing? And and now we got seven and a half hours of phone logs. What do you make of it?
3: Well, it's a great question.
1: I, I mean, clearly
3: uh, the former president was on the phone during that time. I mean, there have been a lot of reports of uh, prominent people who had conversations with him during that time period. And it's really, I think, pretty inconceivable that um, the president of the United States uh, in the midst of an attack on the Capitol was speaking to no one at all uh, about the matter. Very difficult to believe. Um, and so the question is where, you know, where are the records and what more, I think just as importantly, what phone system was he using or what method of communication was he using to speak to people? Um, you know, we've heard uh, r- reports, news reports over time, that Trump associates have used uh, what people call burner phones. in other words, cheap cell phones that you basically toss away after a period of time, something that I encountered quite a bit back uh, during the before I became was a white collar prosecutor when I was uh, investigating narcotics, cartels, you know thing you know groups like that that would toss away cell phones. Uh, also, uh, there's also been reports that Trump would frequently use the cell phone of other people to talk. Uh, you know, like Secret Service and AIDS and things like that. And the, so the question is, is that what he did on that day? Why did he do that? And depending on which of those two things are true, if those are in fact uh, what the alternatives might be, what does that say about his? state of mind a consciousness of guilt that sort of thing
0: so how do you figure that out especially if it's the burner phone thing and he's got a statement out saying i don't i've never heard of what a boner a a burner phone is uh which may or may not be believable um but if the president of the united states is using a burner phone i mean it's not a great look
3: no kidding i mean it sort of speaks for itself uh it was the sort of thing back when I was a prosecutor, that I I think it it itself was a piece of evidence, the use of burner phones. Um, Here's what I would say, uh, if you're a prosecutor, the way I would approach this is, first of all, you have to establish the president's, uh, I would say, speaking habits. In other words, did he ordinarily speak uh, on the phone to people? Did he, um, you know, did he often use different cell phones? Was this a departure from ordinary practice? Then I think you also have to establish the fact of conversations that day. In other words, have people who are on the other end of the line saying, senators, so forth, saying, yes, I did, in fact, speak with the president of the United States that day, and we talked about X, Y, and Z. And then um, I, I think you know the next question would be trying to figure out, following leads, determine how you can determine his phone number. It's interesting. I can give you all sorts of methods by which we used to do that. For uh, ordinary people uh, It's a
1: pretty extraordinary circumstance When that person is in
3: the Oval Office
1: So, uh, you know, sort of To go back to the the uh, Nixon Analogy, uh, where the cover-up Ended up being much more In some ways important than the actual uh, Burglary of the Watergate Hotel uh, And by the way, for the record It was about 18 and a half minutes of, of uh, Tape <laughs> That was missing <laughs> from, from Mr. Nixon I, I mean Is that the case, do you think, here? That are trying to explain why there are missing pieces of evidence, is that going to, in your view as a former prosecutor, be the thing that's going to matter more than perhaps anything else?
3: Well, it's a great question. In other words, I can answer questions for you about what would matter potentially in a trial. But one thing I can't figure out, I don't have any special insight into, is what the public or politicians are swayed by. Uh, In other words, in a different era, uh, it very well may be the case that many of the things that that, uh, former President Trump did would outrage the public, would outrage members of his own party would cause for an impeachment or resignation or something along those lines. Uh, You know, it certainly seems the case that our tolerance for shenanigans has risen over the course of... uh, of United States history, or at least in recent years, uh, what I will say is that um, if this becomes a matter where there's no good explanation, uh, and it, as you put it, as as one of you put it, uh, it, is a very bad look for the former president. And I do, I would think that that would be very damaging because one thing uh, that it, for sure about it is it puts you in a box or in a category or bucket with what I'll call traditional. Uh, criminals The sort of people that uh, you might see on a Netflix special or or might see on a on a show on television. Uh, it's the sort of thing that I think sh- should cause even people who are supportive of the former president to scratch their heads and wonder uh, why he was doing that.
0: Renato Mariotti, attorney, former federal prosecutor, host of the On Topic podcast. Our uh, our our line of shenanigans has arisen over yes, the years. And, right. And, our tolerance and, for it. And, and besides, doesn't everybody use a burner phone? Oh. Every call.
1: And when we uh, come back a little bit later, we will talk uh, with a journalist in Ukraine who is now focusing on helping people in need because of the war and more women could be coaching in the NFL.
0: Right now, Will Smith, uh, no legal punishment for slapping Chris Rock. Uh, the LAPD says it's not going to do anything since uh, Rock doesn't want to press any charges. Uh, but what about punishment by the Academy? The Board of Governors is going to meet tomorrow to discuss what to do. Mark Malkin's with us, senior editor at Variety, host of the Just for Variety podcast. Mark, thanks. So, what are their options here if they decide? Well, we've we've got to do something.
4: I mean, the options are really open right now. You know, the, the Academy um, is this big organization that doesn't make decisions very quickly, um, and it could be anything from you know be, you know cancel his membership to the Academy, take away his Oscar, don't let him ever attend the Oscars again. Um, I think there are various ways this could play out, and I don't think we're going to get a decision overnight.
1: Okay, so in the real world in which I think we all live, uh, what are the chances in your view that any serious uh, actions will be taken because he is Will Smith? Listen, the most serious action that could
4: have been taken with anyone who is, you know, the victim of assault could press charges. Chris Rock has said, I'm not pressing charges, so that's not going to happen. So then the, then, then the question is, you know, what, what do we consider serious um, in Hollywood? Is it, a seri- is it serious if they say you can never come to the Oscars again? Um, I think it would be pretty serious if they said give us your Oscar back or if they said you are no longer a member of the Academy. Um, the chances of anything that serious happening, I don't think it's going to happen. I think there's going to be some, you know, they're going to reprimand them in some way. They have to um they can't you know they can't look like they're condoning this in any way but how that plays out um again like you know i can't emphasize enough i don't think we're going to know overnight
0: are there calls for any of those serious things coming from anybody you know of consequence who's not just on twitter saying take the oscar away
4: (laughs) you know that that's the thing it's like we're, we're looking at film twitter which is a whole different world than actually the film world um You know, Jim Carrey, you you saw, I don't know if you saw his recent interview where he said, you know, he is pretty upset watching Hollywood applaud Will Smith um, getting the Oscar after he assaulted Chris Rock. So you do have people like um, Will Smith who are, you know, publicly really condoning what went on. I think, as we know, in this town, people are nervous to go public with too much criticism,
1: especially someone like Will Smith. Okay, so that raises an interesting question. Why are they so nervous? I mean, if it were. Yeah. Why? why, I mean, you know, the guy did what he did. It was for all the world to see. I think most people uh, would agree that no matter how much offense you may take to anything, whether it's directed at yourself or a spouse or a friend, um, that that hitting somebody is not the solution. Why would people be nervous in this town?
4: I think people are nervous in this town because you don't know what deals they're making. Maybe they have something in the works with Will Smith. Maybe they really hope one day to work with Will Smith or Jada Pinkett Smith or their kids. There's so many, you know, there's so many connect. You know, Will's reach is very long and very far, and he can make people a lot of money. In this town, we know, in the end, it's all about money.
0: What about SAG? SAG after they they released a statement saying uh, the son called for, and then there there was a mention of you know we're not going to talk about disciplinary action as we decide what to do. What what could they do?
4: You know, again, it's you know it is it is the guild. They they could vote and revoke his membership. Um, I don't know if there's like a financial fine they could do to him um, because it is the guild. There are financial. Um, fines that could be involved with, you know, going against their rules and regulations. And this is very murky, murky waters, because, you know, most things you attend in Hollywood, there's that disclaimer saying, you know, you will be booted out of this event if you do, you know, this thing, that thing or the other thing, um, you know, and everyone's questioning why was Will Smith allowed to continue to be a part of Hollywood's biggest night after he literally assaulted someone on the stage.
1: Well, and and maybe, I don't know, maybe the the biggest punishment is going to end up being that the sad spectacle, and I think it probably was, most people would agree, a pretty sad spectacle of what happened uh, on Sunday night, uh, maybe speaks volumes for itself, not only about Will Smith, but maybe about the Academy and the Oscars.
4: Well, you know, I've been asked that a lot, you know, will this tarnish the Oscars? You know, this was not an Oscar thing that happened. Obviously, it was not planned. They did not know about it. I think the Academy and the Oscars, where their future is, is how they respond to it. People are very upset that it took them so long to respond to say they condone violence. Why did it take that long? There are people upset that, you know, the Academy allowed Will to sit in that theater and then go up and accept his Oscar. Um, You know, I think the sad thing is this year, in terms of the Oscars, there was so much history made. There were so many beautiful moments, and those are they're not necessarily being forgotten, but it is not what the focus is on. The focus is on, you know, an assault that happened during the Academy Awards.
0: Mark Malkin, senior editor at Variety, host of the Just for Variety podcast. You're listening
1: to KX in Depth. Mike Simpson. I'm Charles
0: Feldman. War in Ukraine has devastated the country in so many different ways. We've been hearing from people there about how their lives uh, may never get back to once was normal, or at least it might take a, a really long time.
1: Katerina is a journalist there. She left the Donbas region. That was in 2014 after war started with Russian-backed separatists. She went to Kharkiv, where she helped start a media company. But since the war started last month, she has now left Kharkiv. Many others who work for the company are scattered across the whole part of Ukraine and are now writing about the war. Katerina is with us now. Thanks for being with us and taking the time. So tell us a little bit about uh, what you do in Ukraine and how it has been impacted by this war. <clears throat>
5: uh, hi, my name is uh, Katya. uh, so, uh... Uh, I was born in Russia, and uh, I lived there for uh, 10 years. Uh, last uh, 60 years, I lived uh, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, so first uh, eight years, uh, I uh, lived in Donetsk, and that was first time when uh, Russia comes with war to my city and to my home. They occupied Donetsk, and I um, moved uh, to Kharkiv. And uh, so uh, I live uh, in Kharkiv more than seven years. Uh, six years ago, I uh, founded uh, a media about Kharkiv, about local culture uh, and human rights. Uh, and, uh, and also uh, on 24th of February, um, I woke up uh, in the morning in five, at 5. Uh, because uh, I heard explosions, and um, my friend uh, sent me that. Uh, Katya, I'm sorry it's so early, but uh, the war started. Uh, wake up.
1: Um, Katarina uh, you did say uh, that if I heard you correctly, that you were born in in Russia. So you're you're ethnic Russian.
5: Yes, I'm ethnic. Russian and uh, so uh, and uh, that uh, type of people, which uh, Russia uh, came to defend, uh, but uh, that's how Russia defend. Uh, they took home and uh, they took cities, and uh, you goes on other land uh, because uh, because there begins war.
0: Yeah, coming in to do what nobody asked them to do. Yeah. Um. You said you have the media company. What is that like for you to to still kind of trying to be to running this and getting the news out to people and having all your coworkers, like we said, all around the country, and, and you know doing the war coverage and and worried about them.
5: Um, also, uh, before before the war, uh, our media uh, wrote uh, about Kharkiv. Uh, about uh, social projects, uh, about local musicians, artists. But uh, when the war started, uh, we had uh, like two or three days uh, when we thought what we will do uh, uh, with this war, uh, because we understood that that we are not uh, news media, uh, and we decided to uh, in our media. Uh, to uh, on the one side to write about the, about war, uh, from other side um, to uh, 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 remind uh, about this uh, city community uh, because uh, on one in one moment uh, war will be finished and uh, we are interested uh, like people and like media. Um, uh, to see how people will back to city, uh, tell- because now now many of people about which we wrote, they uh, they uh, move to to other cities and to other countries.
1: So tell me a little bit uh, about how, mm. uh, other than your business, of course, uh, how this has impacted you and your family. Uh, do you have? Uh, are you? I presume you're more in the western part of Ukraine now. Is that correct?
5: Uh, I now uh, in Chernivtsi. Uh, it's um, uh, west uh, part of Ukraine. Uh, we moved here in um, the first day. We spent three days on the way, uh, and uh, my family uh, moved uh, to Austria. Uh, but I stayed in Ukraine, and also I here I worked with a project uh, which helps uh, Ukrainian to to win in this war.
0: Why did you stay and not go with the family? Was it to to do the the coverage of the war? Did you want to try and stay and help?
5: Mm. Uh, because it's my land, uh, because it's my country, because I know that uh, uh, I can uh, do something uh, to help uh, people in Ukraine. Um, as example, uh, from from the start of the war, uh, we with my friends uh, launched uh, two projects. Uh, first, uh, it's Your Brave uh, point Org. Uh, this project which helps uh foreign media to connect with people from ukraine uh which can tell truth to media um, and also we uh ask uh media from all countries uh, throughout about ukraine uh, throughout about what happened here uh, because it's uh, it's really hell uh, and uh, i think that um, this uh This war, it's not about uh, Ukraine and Russia. It's uh, a big uh, question about uh, who will win. uh, People which defend their home or people which came to another home and uh, start war there. Uh, And so our first project, uh, This You Are Brave, uh, it uh, helps to tell the world truth about, uh, about war in Ukraine. Do you
1: let
6: me ask
5: uh-huh. me,
1: uh, because, you, again, uh, you mentioned uh, in passing that you were born in Russia. Do you still have friends or relatives in in Russia? And if so, have you been in communication with them? And what is their understanding, if that's the case, of what is actually happening?
5: Uh, my father still uh, lives in Russia, uh, but we, uh, we do not speak with uh, him uh, from the start of war, because uh, he thinks that uh, this war is the uh, right decision. Uh, but, you know, it's...
1: Uh, he, he thinks it's uh, the uh, it right, deci- right. The it, right it, decision? The right decision, he thinks.
5: He- Yes. Uh, so uh, Russia and Russian people uh, think uh, think that uh, if uh, they uh, wouldn't uh, bomb uh, Ukraine, uh, somebody will bomb them. Uh, but you know, it's good to, to say, uh, "Oh, war is right decision when war uh, it not on your land." Uh, when not your children uh died uh because uh because it's bomb they bombed city uh it's right decision when when not your friends died uh, because they don't have food because their city is occupied uh in in this way it can be maybe right decision but when it When war is on your land, uh, that never can be a right decision. What is
0: it like for you to have him believe all this? It's it's your own father.
5: Uh, uh, I had uh, this uh, uh, this thought thoughts from from that twenty fourteen. Uh, war with Russia uh, not started uh, on 24th February. It started uh, eight years ago when they occupied uh, Donetsk, a city where I lived, and they occupied Crimea. So I thought uh, all this shit about uh, the right war uh, all this eight years, but uh, after 24th of February when uh, this war uh, became bigger and it uh, really and Russia really do the hell on the ho- whole territory of Ukraine mm, it's uh, you know uh, now in Ukraine we see very uh, interesting changes in society uh, because uh in addition to uh, missiles flying to our cities we have seen how quickly the borders between people are collapsing uh, communication changing and this family became not because uh, somebody became your family not because he's your relatives uh, but because uh, he um, he thinks in the way you think
1: Katerina, let me let me uh, interrupt because I, I am curious in pursuing this a bit. You're, you're so you're not talking to your your father who's in Russia. Uh, what about your mother? Is are they separated? Is your mother still alive, or d- does she live with your dad in Russia?
5: No, no. My mother, with my brother, she uh, lives uh, in Austria.
1: Austria. And so your your mom's my, in my Austria.
5: Mom and with my grandparents. Uh, and also, uh, city in Ukraine where they lived before, it was uh, totally destroyed uh, two weeks ago. Totally destroyed. For and now, and now people which stayed in the city, they uh, died every day uh, because they don't have food, because Russian barriers um, don't give permission. To humanitarian uh, organizations uh, to bring food to this city, so people really sit uh, in basements and they die because they don't have food. Can you imagine this situation uh, on in twenty first century?
0: How how are the family members doing that that were able to get out there that are in Austria in terms of making that journey and then having somewhere to stay? You know, now that they're there.
5: It's difficult for them because uh, my family uh, lose uh, their home. My my mom and my brother at uh, 2014 and uh, they uh, bought apartments uh, three years ago and they lose them again.
1: How do you think This is likely to end. Do you think that that Ukraine is going to – there have been some comparisons made to North and South Korea, for example, uh, that, of course, have have been divided for quite some time now since the Korean War. Do you think that that is what is the the end result of this war uh, that Russia has imposed on Ukraine, that you'll end up being a divided – country with a, a western part that's a sovereign country but an eastern part the Donbas region certainly and maybe even uh, the southeast part near the uh Odessa area as being part of Russia <clears throat>
5: uh, no uh, this uh this can't happen uh, because uh, if uh, Russia wants uh, to divide a country on uh, different parts. Parts uh, in beginning, they should uh, kill all Ukrainians uh, because uh, all that hell, what they do uh, last uh, month in Ukraine, um, they uh, they do Ukrainians uh, more nationalistic than they were before that. Uh, And uh, I think that uh, all what they do on our land, uh, we never will forgive them. We never will forgive them. uh, Thousands people in Mariupol, which uh, uh, die every day. uh, Because children die because they don't have water. Uh, and uh, Ukrainians uh, never will forgive all this shit to Russia, and they will uh, never. Um, uh, mm, I don't know how 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 it's uh, right uh, to say. Uh, Ukrainians will never allow to divide their country, and uh, Ukrainians will never uh, give their land to Russia.
0: That's Ekaterina there, was in the Donbass region, left there after 2014, went to Kharkiv, uh, started the media company, now had to flee there uh, because of the bombings. And and, and as she was saying, kind of, it was a cultural kind of magazine, newspaper thing, turned yeah. it around how they're doing war coverage and, and heartbreaking. The, the the family dynamic the dad in russia in russia doesn't believe that any of this is happening mom lost her home the first go rounds in 2014 had to leave again to lost his home she's in austria. she's in austria now yeah wow. uh ekaterina thanks so much for talking to us and uh we we, we wish you all the best
1: This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
0: Russian and Ukrainian officials meeting in Turkey for the peace talks. Some progress so far as Russia says it'll scale back fighting around Kyiv.
1: Turkey's foreign minister says there's been a consensus and common understanding on some issues. How much closer are we, though, to ending this war? Robert English is the director of Central European Studies at USC, an expert on domestic and foreign politics of Russia and Eastern Europe. Robert, thanks for being with us. So, uh, you know, we've heard so many uh, times throughout this uh, war about uh, meetings and, and, uh, uh, you know, it would seem on any given day that one side or the other had perhaps a formula that might lead to a diplomatic resolution. But a lot of ifs, a lot of buts, and a lot of what ifs. So what do you make of the latest?
6: I am slightly encouraged. After so many disappointments, as you correctly point out, there have been a lot of meetings, of of negotiations with absolutely no progress. But, you know, a war only ends, a ceasefire only comes into place when both sides are exhausted and neither one can gain much more, and they start having a common interest in stopping the fighting. And we're getting close to that. Uh, we're not there yet, but we know that while Russia can and missile strikes and still do a ton of damage. They can't seem to take any territory. And in fact, they're being forced into an early retreat. So it's not looking good for them. They're not going to conquer Ukraine. And they now know it. And their army's hollowed out, and it's weakened, and it's demoralized. And it could be on the edge of collapse in another few weeks if they don't halt the fighting. Ukraine, for its part, is absolutely exhausted. The country is being destroyed. And so sadly, all this destruction and degradation on both sides has finally brought them close to a ceasefire.
0: Do you do we believe Russia in the actual scaling back of the fighting around Kiev? Because some people are, are saying, OK, well, they made a huge mistake by thinking they were going to take the country in one fell swoop. So now what they're doing is they're going to fall back. They're going to regroup. They're going to go in piece by piece. And then also while they're at it, they're going to keep on shelling while they while they regroup themselves.
6: I've been following the military side really closely and that includes not only the incidents of mutiny, of disobedience, of demoralization on the front, but also there are really serious problems in recruiting to find reinforcements, both human and material. They are not they don't have the tanks. They are cannibalizing older models for spare parts. They are having trouble calling up recruits. Um, It's going really badly, and the public is resisting. And so on that side, I'm more encouraged that Russia will not be able to do what some worry about, what you described. You're right. We won't know for sure. The proof is in the pudding, and I think President Biden is probably right here to say I'll believe it when I see it. But I just don't see how Russia can mount a new offensive with any success, especially as we continue to arm the Ukrainians with the weapons to resist
1: that. Okay, so provided that there is a diplomatic solution, uh, who ends up, in your view, with the upper hand in that solution? Does Putin walk away with uh, a sizable uh, enough—and I'm putting the word victory in quotes—victory that he could sell it, if he needs to sell it, to the Russian people as a total victory, or does he— Uh, withdraw his troops having gained really nothing except perhaps the disgust of the world i think he will try to
6: hold on to that modest additional territory on the interior around crimea connecting the crimean area with the Donbass. it's not much it's maybe a four or five percent of ukrainian territory everything else he's tried and has not been able to hold i think Still, when you're the propagandist-in-chief and you have uh, you know, state media dominating, you can sell anything as a victory, and he can claim if Ukraine agrees to some kind of no NATO or neutral status, which is being floated now, if they agree to that and he has this little bit of territory gained in the Donbas region, yeah, that's more than enough for him to claim victory, even though we all know it is a stinging defeat. Uh, in terms of what he tried to achieve, which was total conquest.
0: Is it Ukraine and the resistance? Was it Putin drinking his own Kool-Aid or back to the military side of things? Was the Russian army really never that up to the task, even though the rest of the world thought they might have (laughs) been?
6: People in my business are going to be digesting this and having fun analyzing it for years. And I think it's probably some of both. I think you put your finger on both sides. The army wasn't as good as we thought. And I think that's because of the corruption. It's because the competence and diversity that Putin had in his government in the early years, where he had competing advisors, he had a lot of technocrats, a lot of experts, and they contended and they debated and they came up with you know, pretty reasonable policies. That's all gone. The Putin of recent years has you know, shut himself off. He's been more isolated. He's gotten rid of all original thinkers, and only yes-men are there. And yeah, they told him his army was great, and it wasn't. They told him they were ready to conquer, and they weren't. So they were feeding him Kool-Aid, but he was asking for it. It was that dilemma of an autocrat where everyone is afraid to say something that displeases them. They fed him the Kool-Aid, but they felt they had no choice. And the result is you know, a military disaster.
0: Robert English, Director of Central European Studies at USC.
1: Well, football long the domain of men, but that has been changing. And it uh, it looks like it's going to change even more in the NFL.
0: League says all 32 teams will be required to hire a woman or minority offensive assistant coach for the upcoming season. Tracy Sandler, San Francisco 49ers beat reporter, founder and CEO of Fangirl Sports Network, hosts the podcast Get My Job and The Tracy Sandler Show. Tracy, thanks for being here. So, uh, thoughts on this? Is this one of those, uh, hey, positive step, good, but still uh, plenty of steps to take?
7: I I would say yes. I think you nailed it. I think it is a positive step. It is good, but plenty of steps to take. And uh, you mentioned the Tracy Taylor show. I actually had NFL media's Judy Batista on today's episode. And we talked about this yesterday before the, the rule change came out, but we talked about You know, one of the things with the league in diversity hiring is it feels like there have been attempts and there are band-aids, but essentially everything probably needs major surgery to really see change. But I do believe that this is a positive step, and we'll see how it goes, you know, over this coming season. And it it is certainly a start. It's certainly not a bad thing, that's for sure.
1: And is there, in your view, a a substantial enough, talent base uh a talent bench if you will to recruit these people
7: absolutely i believe i believe there is a lot of talent out there in the nfl and uh you know i think it we talked to uh Ford ceo Jed york today he talked a lot about how when you're open to hiring the best people for the job when you're opening to hire that are maybe different than the norm. Even there are some people you talked about who kind of came from the finance world that are now looking at NFL front offices. It really opens up the diversity pool all the way around. But there's a tremendous amount of talent uh, in coaches and assistants in the NFL. And it's time that everybody got these opportunities. So, you know, it was very frustrating this hiring season. There were all these coaching vacancies and which with each position being filled, it was more and more disappointing that my minority coaches weren't getting these jobs. So hopefully this is a step in the right direction, and the people who are very deserving of jobs will will start to get them because there's a tremendous talent pool. That I have no
0: doubt. And one idea here is, is kind of a pipeline, right? Because the league has said, you know, head coaches uh, predominantly have the offensive background. So start people there and then wait, uh, what, uh, even if it takes a number of years, then hopefully we have more head coaches that look like this.
7: I think that's true. I mean, I think it would be so cool. uh, It might be a while before we get there, before we see if we get a female head coach in the NFL at some point. Um, It might be a while, but this is certainly a a step in that direction. But you don't have to have played football to understand the game. You don't have to have played football to coach the game. So people should be getting the opportunity to – to be in positions of which they're very knowledgeable and very passionate, of which they can make a real difference for football teams.
1: How much of acceptance do you think there will be among the players? Because as we mentioned in kicking off the segment, football has has sort of been identified identifiable as a as a male thing.
7: Well, I, I mean, I can speak from the experience of Katie Sowers, who was an offensive assistant uh, who worked with the wide receivers for the 49ers for, for several years. And there was no, it, it certainly did not seem to be any issue. There did not seem to be any, uh, any pushback on her being a woman. I mean, all of the wide receivers very much respected Katie. She was, she is a really good coach. I believe she's now with the Kansas City Chiefs. And her being a woman was certainly a story in that there are not a lot of female assistants to the NFL at this point. But it, it was not a story in that anybody had any, hesitation or trepidation about her ability and she did a fantastic job working with that wide receiver court
0: you think some fans have more of a problem with some of it than the actual players because the players obviously know right away oh they know what they're talking about so as long as we're going to win and you're really good tell me what to do i'll get out there and do it
7: you know that's an interesting question and i I come to it a little bit from from fan girl sports network i mean 45 percent and it sounds like a very high number but 45% Forty-five percent of NFL fans are women, so I believe that that is really changing in terms of fans. I don't, I don't think fans have an issue with it. I, I really don't, and that could be naive of me, but I think ultimately fans want to see their football teams win, and whoever is going to help that happen is what matters. And I think the female fan has become such a huge part of the game that we still have a long way to go. And as you guys said at the top of the segment, there are many, many steps to go in all of these things. But I, I don't think there'll be pushbacks in the fans. Hopefully I will not be disappointed in that, but I don't think there will be.
1: I was going to ask you, Tracy, what do you think the next barrier is to break?
7: The, the next barrier to break, is just in terms of, Coaching
1: hirings? Or? Well, I mean, just the NFL in general. I mean, this is a, is a fairly large uh, improvement. I think everyone would agree. I think most people would agree with that. But are there more things that need to be accomplished?
7: Well, I think we want to see, I think we want to see more minorities in, in positions in front offices, more women in positions in front offices. I mean, you know, one of the things we saw over the last week was, Trade for Deshaun Watson, and he certainly is the top five quarterback in this league, but there are some tremendous issues, as we know, going on with him. And there are 22 civil suits of women alleging sexual misconduct. That's a lot of suits. And so a lot of lawsuits. It's a lot of women. So, you know, the NFL still needs to prove that it really does care about women and care about protecting women and believing women and empower, empowering women. And I think a lot of that is going to be more more women in positions in front offices and and these positions of power because I think what we saw last week was a little bit icky, frankly, and and upsetting. And and I know something I really struggled with is a female reporter, I love football and I love the NFL, but there are a lot of these issues that I find disappointing. And, And like I said, going back to what I said earlier about all these coaching vacancies, so many positions open, so many qualified minority candidates and take saw positions being filled by you know, the same, the same types of people and not taking anything away from those coaches. Those coaches are fantastic at what they do. You just want to see more people get opportunities and representation really matters. And that's why we need to put more and more people in these positions of power.
0: Tracy Sandler, San Francisco 49ers beat reporter, founder, CEO, Fangirl Sports Network, podcasts, Get My Job and the Tracy Sandler Show. Thank you. That's In Depth for today. Back tomorrow.